She said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. And so this goes on and on and on to the point where it gets uncomfortable. Her asking me what it is I want to do and me saying, I don't know. And finally, I say, you know what? I want to be a director. Like, it was a kind of moment. Right. I was like, wait, I did it, was it was it an eruption? Was it like I want to be? It a director? was an like, eruption. I it want was, to be a director. Yes, <laughs> I mean I'm not going to try to perform it because acting is not <laughs> not in my skill set. But it was it was a moment. It was an eruption. It was like I said that thing that I had never said until mm -hmm. that moment. I'd been scared to say it, and that was my mom's point. She was like, "All right," so she was like, "When I was your age, I wanted to be an actress." But I was scared. I was scared to say it, and I'm not. And I've never been an actress. So my job with you is to make you say what it is you want to do. Now that you've said it, you have to do everything in your power to do it. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman welcoming you to, you guessed it, episode 14 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And this is one of our... Uh, kind of bread and butter director to director combos. Steve is one of the first brothers I met at NYU. I was in the undergraduate department. He was in the graduate department and um, he was pretty notorious for being a hell of a filmmaker. So um, we've been friends since back, back in those days, might've even been another century. And uh, it's been amazing to watch his rise. He was someone that I was kind of watching postgraduate uh, uh, life very closely as he went through uh, the Disney ABC program and got his first jobs uh, directing from The Wire to Grey's Anatomy and uh, really took off. And so if you uh, are on Quibi, hopefully you've checked out Free Ray Sean. He directed the hell out of that. Um, I think that has been up for three Emmys, um, but in bite-sized pieces of about seven minutes per episode, it's an entire feature film um, that Seath directed, executive produced by Antoine Fuqua, starring Stephen James, uh, I think Jasmine Cephas-Jones, and of course, Mr. Lawrence Fishburne. So we're going to get into that, but real quick. Uh, I, I invite you to check out PowerThePolls.org. Power the Polls is a website that will help you staff your local polling place. And as I've mentioned on previous episodes, with coronavirus still at large, some are out here not wearing their masks, but look, it's real. I uh, am on a show and someone was just... Uh, 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 tested positive in, in, in the last week. So there are ways that these things get taken care of, but um, it's a real thing and it's not going away and leadership can help with that. And leadership can only change if we have our poll places open. So visit Power the Polls. Um, I mentioned prior that the average age of poll workers in the past has been 72 years old. And at this point, that just ain't safe, y'all. So let's get out there, use our privilege, use our healthy bodies and able minds, and you will get PPE in return. You will get training for the job and you will get paid. So powerthepolls.org, episode 14, Seath Man. Let's get at it. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. So welcome to the podcast, Seath. Uh, where where are you from, man? Tell me tell me the beginnings of the journey for you. Uh, originally from Washington D.C., um, grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is you know the area still right outside D.C., about thirty minutes outside. 
Um, and, you know, lived there until I was 18, went to school, went to Morehouse College for undergrad, went to NYU for film school. Uh, was mostly on the East Coast until I moved out to LA and to do the uh, ABC DGA director training program. And, um, and was there about nine years and now I'm, now I'm in Atlanta. All right. That's a man who, who does interviews right there. Gave <laughs> gave the whole rundown. Um, how, so when did you, so when you were in DC in Maryland uh, for up through up until high school graduation, right? Yeah, Maryland for high school. I moved from D.C. to Maryland when I was about six or seven years old. So, you know, I'm a Maryland kid. Uh, and then, yeah, stayed there until I went to college. And when did you pick up a camera or if not pick up a camera? Because I feel like in our day, that's how you started directing. You started directing by picking up a camera. Um, when did you get started? So I got interested when I was in high school. Um, I, you know, grew up, I, we were a movie family, you know what I mean? So I grew up watching movies and then uh, around my senior year of high school, I took a uh, TV production class that they had in my high school. As a senior skate class, really, you know how your senior year you would load up on those easy <laughs> electives so you could just kind of, you know what I mean? Prop the GPA right. up a little bit and and just skate a little bit, relax, have some fun. And so that was one of those electives. That's what I thought I was taking it for. You know, this will be fun. And it was fun, but it was also, you know, began to shape the direction of my life. So, you know, that's when I got interested, you know, in the course of taking that class, you know, I started making little shorts with my boy Darren. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, I saw, uh, do the right thing, you know, and it's like, hey, you know, this is the way I want to go. I want to make films. I want to make movies. Uh, so when I went to Morehouse for undergrad, they did not at the time have a mass comm um, focus or major. Um, I, they had previously, but by the time I got there, they had gotten rid of it, I think, because there were too many Morehouse students who are, you know, overcrowding the classes at Clark Atlanta, which is where the mass comm curriculum actually sat and existed. Uh, but I was having too much fun in Morehouse to even consider <laughs> transferring, you know what I mean? So I, I became an English major. And in the meantime, I would, um, I would work on, you know, there was a brother named Aki Spicer, there was a brother named Steve Foley who were making a lot of shorts independently when I was in college and I would work on their stuff while I was down in school and then when I would go home for summers, every summer me and my boy Darren would make a short or something. Um, and eventually I uh, applied to film school. What was it about uh, Do the Right Thing that got you? Because for listeners of the podcast, I, I've, I've recounted how that was the film that did it for me. And I always talk about the, the bugging out uh, Jordan moment where he got his Jordan scuff by the, by the Celtic fan. And I was like, man, like that's, I get that. That feels like something I know on screen. Like what, what about that film kind of clicked for you? You know, it was, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was a particular moment in the film or not. And, and, it, and it, in all honesty, I think it was a little bit of a one-two punch between she's got to have it and do the right thing. So I remember, you know, the first time I saw she's got to have it, I saw it on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. My mom brought home this tape, gave it to my brother, and I, you know, said, hey, you guys, I want you to watch this movie. So we watched the movie, and, you know, it was like, there was nudity. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Like, my mom just gave me a movie with nudity. You know, I was excited and trying not to show how excited I was. You know what I mean? But, you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that the point was not for me to see the nudity. The point was she wanted me to see that black people were making movies and that black people could make movies. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that was the film that made me realize, oh, black people can make movies. I didn't know that. I hadn't ever considered that. And then when I saw Do the Right Thing, it was like, I was so charged by that movie. I was so affected by it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I remember leaving that theater feeling 
I don't know, things I had never felt, you know what I mean? And understanding the import of what the filmmaker was saying. And I just thought it was powerful. And I wanted to be able to tell stories like that. I wanted to be able to affect people like that. You know what I mean? Um, so that was, that was how it got me. Were you aware that Spike had gone to Morehouse or were you already looking at a historically black college uh, while you were in high school? So, I think I did know Spike had gone to Morehouse. And I think I was also looking just independently, you know, at, at historically black colleges. I was looking at other colleges too, but I definitely liked the idea of going to a historically black college. I liked the idea of going to Howard uh, quite a bit also, but Howard was too close to home and I wanted to get away from home. So Morehouse became the next, uh, the next thing that I really, I mean, truth be told, my, my older brother went to Morehouse and from the time he was uh, a freshman, he told me I was going to Morehouse, which of course <laughs> made me certain that I was not going to Morehouse. You know what I mean? Just on the strength that he told me that's where I was going. I was like, I ain't going to Morehouse. You know, so I was trying to figure out how to make Howard work. I was applying to other schools, but ultimately, you know, I feel like my destiny was there and somewhere along the way I realized he was right and that's where I wanted to go, so I went. That's interesting too, what you mentioned about uh, the mass communications op uh, elective, I guess, uh, or path being taken away because there was too much interest. Um, so did you, did you at a certain point recognize, all right, I gotta go, I had my fun in Atlanta <laughs> and now I wanna go and get a, immerse myself in, in film education? You know, yeah, sort of, but in a roundabout way, I'd be dishonest if I, um, you know, tried to describe, you know, how I made my decisions at that age as that sort of intentional, you, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, I, so I was at Morehouse, I did take some mass comm classes. I just, they were just, I didn't have the major. You know what I mean? I managed to, you know, finagle my way into some classes anyway. And while I was in Morehouse, I mean, in truth, I was interested. I hadn't like said, you know, this is it. This is the path. You know what I mean? I was always around production. I was shooting my own things, but it was, it was more like that was just what I did. It wasn't like I am doing all of these steps because these are the necessary building blocks to become a professional director or a professional filmmaker. And so what happened, how I ended up going to film school was that while I was in Morehouse, they had this thing called the, the Scholars Program, which was, uh, it was a program designed to, um, to promote, you know, more black students to pursue uh, post-baccalaureate degrees. Um, and I got involved with it, you know, honestly, because they, uh, they had this, you had to, you know, you, you got in the program, you had to write this big research paper. There was a $5,000 stipend for writing a paper. And, you know, you went on this grad school tour and everything like that, but that $5,000 stipend for a paper caught my, caught my attention because I was, uh, how shall I say? I have to decide if I'm gonna choose this later. But the truth is, while I was in college, you know, my side hustle was I wrote papers. You know what I mean? I obviously I wrote papers for myself, but I also would write papers in for a certain amount of cash, let someone else use said paper for their own studies. You know what I mean? So, but I wasn't charging no five thousand dollars. So, like. A $5,000 paper was like, shit, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like, I gotta do that. So I got in the program just so I could write me a big paper and get this money. But we went on the grad school tour, which was great and it was cool. And every school we went to, we went to like Brown, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, all the Ivy League schools, you know, and I was an English major. And at every school, because I was an English major, they, you know, you would visit the department you were part of. So I would visit these English departments. And the more I visited the English departments, the more I became aware that I really wasn't interested in getting a graduate degree in English. You know what I mean? Mm. I love to read, I love stories, but I, I wasn't, 
I wasn't academically motivated like that. I wasn't passionate about it like that. And uh, and so I was mostly getting discouraged about, I don't think um, grad school was really for me, you know? And then we visited NYU. And while I was there, I, I mentioned to a brother, I think his name was John Gates, uh, who happened to have been a Morehouse alum that I was interested in film. And he was like, well, you know, we have the best, uh, we have the best film department in the world and you should meet our dean and da 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 da. So I met Cheryl Antonio and Susan Carnival and they told me all about the film school and everything like that. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. But I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. You know what I mean? And I hadn't really declared that I wanted to be a director yet. Even though I was doing all this stuff that I now recognize are the steps, right? But I was just... Right. And, uh, you know, they were like, well, you know, we also have a sight and sound course. It's like a six week boot camp. If you, you know, it gives you an idea of what film school would be like if you want to do, do that. And I was like, okay, cool. And so then I went home. I'd actually, I accidentally graduated from Morehouse a semester early. So at this point in my, what should have been my second semester of my senior year, I was back at home because of some other things that happened. And, um, so I went home and I'm talking to my mom and I'm telling her about this trip and, you know, I tell her about this, the film school and she's like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, what do you think of that? And I was like, I don't know about film school. And she's like, well, you know, I told her about the sight and sound thing. And she's like, well, what do you think about that? And I was like, yeah, it's a lot of money. I don't have, it. you know, I was living at home, but I insisted on paying rent, you know what I mean? Cause I was one of them, I'm grown kind of 22 year old, I'm a man, so I gotta pay my rent if I'm gonna live here. And my parents tolerated me and took my money. Um, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, it's too expensive. I can't afford that, right? She was like, I'll help you with it. And I was like, well, no, nah, I can't ask for your help. You know, I'm a man, I'm independent. She's like, I'll help you with it. I can, I've got some savings, I'll help you with it. And I was like, nah. She's like, yeah, no, nah, I'll help you. I think you should do it. And I'm like, no, nah, that's okay. And she's like, no, nah, I think you should do it. And I'm like, no, nah, she's like, I think you should do it. And I'm like, and this is going on. She's like, well, see, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. She's like, what do you want to do? And she's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. And so this goes on and on and on to the point where it gets uncomfortable. Her asking me what it is I want to do and me saying, I don't know. And finally, I say, you know what? I want to be a director. Like, it was a kind of moment. Right. I was like, wait, wait was it was it an eruption? Was it like I want to be it a director? It was an like, eruption. I want to be a director. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm not gonna try to perform it because acting is not <laughs> not in my skill set, but it was it was a moment. It was an eruption. It was like I said that thing that I had never said until mm. that moment. I'd been scared to say it. And that was my mom's point. She was like, All right. So she was like. When I was your age, I wanted to be an actress, but wow. I was scared. I was scared to say it and I'm not, and I've never been an actress. So my job with you is to make you say what it is you wanna do. Now that you've said it, you have to do everything in your power to do it. So I'm gonna help you go to that sight and sound class and the rest is on you. So she helped me go to that sight and sound class and it was ill because I was always a good student. Like I was at Morehouse on scholarship, you know what I mean? But I was like a lazy good student. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I got good grades. I got the grades I needed to get, but it wasn't because I worked hard. I wasn't, I, in retrospect, I realized that I did not study enough to hold on to things for life. I studied enough to hold on to them right. for tests. You know what I mean? Regurgitate the information, like yeah. get the assignment done quick and get back to your free time. And when I got to that sight and sound class, it was like the first time in my academic life where I just loved the material. I loved every, like I was just devoured. I was just passionate about what I was learning. And I was like, okay, so if this is what film school is, then I need to go. And so after that six week boot camp, I turned around and applied to go to NYU and I got in and that's, how I ended up in film school, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like, you know what I mean? When you, the way you asked it, I was like, sort of, but not really. You know what I mean? Right. It, was, it was definitely a circuitous kind of path there. But it sounds like the dominoes were like falling in that direction since she's got to have it. Yes, indeed. And I think, I think anybody around me could see them, but me. <laughs> but, but you make a good point, right? I think like 
it's it's beautiful that your mom said that because you know now we're getting in, into the in, into the specifics of who we are but mm-hmm. like we don't have parents where it's like most of us don't have parents like oh I'm a I'm a poet and it's successful you know what I mean it's like yo I had this job that I never wanted but like you eat every day, you know, or uh, I'm going to go take that loan out so you can go to college and I'll go into debt for you, but I hope that you can do better. So like, you don't, it's almost not, it's like not sitting around and hearing your family talk about investments when you're a kid, like you don't even know that that's a thing. And so then you needed that push and she saw it because she saw herself in you. Yep, definitely. Miriam's rules, that's what I call (laughs) So when you got to NYU um, uh-huh. and did Dean Antonio, what, was she like waiting for you? <laughs> she like, I, I, knew, I knew you'd show up. Like, how did that go? My Don, the Don Dean Antonio. Yeah, she was waiting for me. Um, she was cool, man. She was great. And But it was funny. She was waiting for me, but she was also waiting for me to, you know, recognize what a resource she was, you know, it could be. Um, I can remember after, uh, I think it was really my, it's my second year, um, second year films. And I had produced a film for my classmate, Greg Williams. And he, well, he, he actually made an adaptation of uh, James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues, starred mm-hmm. Saul Williams uh, before, uh, before he blew up. And um, Greg screened it for Dean Antonio. And I was there, I projected it and, you know, ran the film and then we sat down with her and she started just responding to it. And, um, and, and she just had so much insight. You know, it was constructive, it was critical. You know, she was rough where she needed to be. Um, she, she praised it where she, you know what I mean? But it was like really helpful constructive criticism and uh apparently i don't remember this but she never lets me forget it now apparently i said something silly like damn if i had known you were this uh this this sharp i would have showed you my films or something like that and i did start every time i made a film or you know i showed her my second year film which she destroyed um and you know when i wrote my thesis film and she saw like every other draft and every other cut, like I wouldn't leave her alone because her her insights were just so on point, you know? Right. And honest, I mean, she's, I don't know, you know, what your relationship is with her is like, but she is brutal um, with the feedback, you know? But you need, yeah. you need you people need that. to talk straight that aren't like gonna, you know, soften the blow to spare your feelings. You know what I mean? Like that's not helpful. Um, right. It's not ever, but particularly when you're learning the craft, you know what I mean. And um, you know, she 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 tore my work up often, but it was you know, it's very special. I have I have tremendous amount of love for Dina Antonio. I should actually get her on here. We had her on the old podcast I used to do. I should get her on here because now she was. We had a good relationship. She when I was raising money for my feature, I had built an advisory board around my um, company because I wanted people to see that I was not, that although I was the weakest link in the project, being that it was my first thing um, of that level, I had a team around me. So I had her um, representing like the history and criticism aspect of, of what we were doing. And I had Richard Wesley, who was chair of the writing department. And I had Sam Pollard, you know, director, editor, and it was all built. So like, 35 investors could see like he's got a, a, a nucleus around him that's gonna ideally keep this thing on the path but uh yeah she'll she'll tear a script up but do it with love, <laughs> with love. you don't necessarily feel like that in the moment but later you realize it was love <laughs> so let's talk let's talk about five deep breaths because that is um you know i feel like your journey is unique in the sense that when people get to features, right, they they all like they make these business plans and all of their films reference the lightning in a bottle kind of Sundance success stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like your short is is an, is kind of an example of that. It's like the ultimate mixtape 
that it's like it's like Drake's first mixtape and then it led to like a, a huge career um, because you made it, you won, uh, you went to Sundance, you won two awards at NYU First Run. Um, it kind of set you up with uh, IFP and the Gordon Parks Award. So like, just talk about what your impetus was to make that film and then what that film meant for your career. Sure. Um, the impetus was, I mean, that's that's such an interesting question. I needed to make a film. It was my thesis film. So, you know, uh, and I wanted to do something that was good. Um, so that was like the practical of it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it was a story that was on my mind. So it was, so Five Deep is loosely based, stress on loosely based on something that went down with me and some friends when I was, in college. And, you know, it was a story that I felt like would translate well to film. But it was also a story that I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit wary of in that, you know, I have black men using the N-word heavily, waving a gun around, you know what I mean? Like, this is a story that just some of the, the things that happened if mishandled could feel like stereotype, could feel like trope. And I was scared that I was gonna make a film and fuck it up and do something that I didn't feel good about. That would not add to the canon of, you know, great black work, but instead add to the, you know, pile of stereotype, typical shit. Um, but I also realized that I was scared of it, you know what I mean? And I don't know, probably something out of that whole conversation with my mom, there's a there's a thing with me when I realize I'm scared of something that I kind of have to lean into it, you know what I mean? So it was kind of like, if I'm scared to tell this story the wrong way, I just have to tell it and make sure I don't fuck it up. So that's kind of where it came from, what the, I guess the impetus was. And, you know, the, I guess the, the sort of what the film was all about, you know what I mean, was also like, in terms of impetus, it was also like yearning to speak to that, you know what I mean, which was interesting because I never really, like when I was writing drafts, when I was talking to people about it, when I was doing my prospectus to try to raise money for it, it was always hard for me to articulate what this film was about, you know what I mean? Um, and, and yet there was this yearning to, to say something, what, whatever the film said, which I'm not going to try to articulate right now. Um, but once I made it, it was like, it helped me figure out how to say what I was saying. You know what I mean? So it was like, right. if there were, there, were, there were motivations just, I think, on a sort of interior artistic level. There were motivations on a, on a practical level. And then there was motivation on, on the level of, you know, recognizing my own reticence about this thing and, and needing to kind of go after it. Do you think... Um... What, what, would, what would be your synopsis for the film, uh, too, just so folks kind of are in the ballpark of what it's about? Um, <laughs> what is the synopsis? I'm trying to remember. Uh, <laughs> damn, I used to Wait. have a good one. Uh, Wait, I, I could tell you. I could tell you. Please tell me. <laughs> see, there's multiples floating around. I'm curious to see if you have the one that I actually endorse. Um, so I, it says on IMDb, friends meet at the crossroads of loyalty and morality and are forced to decide which path to walk. Yep, that's the one I like. That's the one you like, I right. And, and we, should, we should also note you had uh, some folks who, you, who are you know, very recognizable, talented actors, household to those who really appreciate the art. Um, Jamie, Jamie Hector, Anselm Richardson, Marquise Harris, Curtis Cook, Harvey Gardner-Moore, Karamu Kush. Uh, I've worked with a couple of those brothers, so, um, you know, good eye for Pascal Armand. Well. Yeah, no, I was, the thing, one of the things, 
I, I ended up being very proud of that film. And, and, I'll, and I'll come back to your question about like what it meant to my career. But one of the things that I was proudest about was that, you know, a lot of people, you know, got, got exposure from the film. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, uh, on, the, I believe it was the third season of The Wire, they ended up, The Wire ended up auditioning um, all the brothers that were in the film that still lived on the East Coast got to come in for an audition for the third season of The Wire. And that's how they found Jamie, who ended up playing Marlo. Right. Um, they found him, they found him in Five Deep. And I remember talking to Ed Burns about it one time. He was like, yeah, we saw your film, we saw Jamie, and uh, we just thought he was so great. And we, we brought him in, we just took all that soul and humanity that he had in your film, and we just took it right out of him. Because <laughs> <laughs> for those who have not seen The Wire, Marlo was one of the, one of the uh, most notorious villains of, of recent yeah. memory. What was his line? You you think it's you think it's one way, but it's the other way. Or you think it's this way, but it's you the other way. You want it to be so, one way, but it's yeah, but it's the other way. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So so then um so that was what, 2003 or so, um, at least from Sundance and the afterlife of it beginning to circulate uh festivals and markets and whatnot. Um, and so how how did it how did it pop off to get you involved with the wire? So also a, a very good story. Um, I don't actually know how Bob Colesbury saw my film, uh, but there was a producer on the wire named Bob Colesbury who saw my film and set up a coffee with me. Um, and, you know, we met, we met for maybe 15 minutes we had coffee uh, somewhere in Manhattan. I want to say it was maybe Bubby's. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, we had coffee. You know, he asked me some questions, talked about the film a little bit, and was like, you know, listen, I, I would, would you be interested in shadowing on the, on, the, on the wire when we start production back up? And I was like, absolutely. Um, and, and then he left on the way on his way out, or on my way out, his next appointment was a director named Eddie Bianchi. And he introduced us, he said, you know, Eddie, this is Steve Mann, he's a young director. I remember noting that he had called me a director. He didn't call me like a student filmmaker. He called me a director, which I was like, that's cool. You know, <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, I went on my way. Um, about a month later, Bob Colesbury passed away, unexpectedly. And, you know, I heard about it. Um, I didn't know, you know, I just met him for coffee. I didn't have a number. I didn't know anyone that knew him. So I didn't even know who to really express condolences to, you know, I was like, damn. And I assumed that would be the end of that story. Um, but about a month later, Nina Noble, who is the, another producer, the line producer on The Wire reached out to me and said, you know, listen, um, Bob was a big fan of yours and out of respect for his memory. We, we'd love to have you come shadow on the show. We have an apartment uh, ready for you in Baltimore that's normally for the editor, but they're not, you know, they're not there for the first episode. Eddie Bianchi has already agreed to let you shadow him. So if you can get down here, you know, whatever. And she told me there was a memorial for Bob the night before they started production, you know, if I wanted to come to that. So I went to that. And it was strange because people kept introducing themselves to me. Like, hey, you're Seath. Hey, you know, and I'm like, what the, what is going on? You know what I mean? So um, what I would find out when I, over the course of shadowing there was that Bob had taken my short back to Baltimore or wherever um, and literally made every executive producer on the show sit down and watch my short and told them he wanted me to direct. Um, and I found this out from David Simon, who, you know, introduced himself to me on set the first day. He was like, Hey, I'm David Simon. I'm the showrunner. I, I remember, I remember him saying that because I didn't know what a showrunner was at that time. I was like, 
Is that like, you know what I mean? What does that mean exactly? Um, but, and he told me, he was like, you know, Bob's secret plan was for you to direct an episode this season. Um, we're still finding our way without Bob. So I, I doubt that's going to happen, but you know, we wanted you to come. We wanted you to learn everything you could. And, you know, and then he was out the door and I was like, wow. So this guy literally ushered me into the wire from beyond the grave. That's how that short got me involved with the wire, Bob Colesberry. That's that's a beautiful story, and and I almost I almost want to ask you one pit stop question in that because I feel like looking back at that moment, like what do you think it was about you and how you presented yourself and this film that you made that connected with? Colesbury, you know, because that's often a big question. Like I, I, I tell the story how um, I had met Todd Holland and mm. we had, I just kept in touch with emails and whatnot. And then after I finally met him in person on inauguration day, 2017, mm. I left, went to get coffee and he had blind copied me on an email to Kenya Barris saying, mm my show's not coming back for season four, The Real O'Neills, but if it were Pizza Guy, I would give a shot. And I'm oh, like, wow. I didn't even ask that, but but what happened in the in the osmosis of our exchanges? You know what I mean? Like, what, what do you think it was with that for you? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's easier for me to say now, in retrospect, what what got me to the table with him in terms of that film? You know what I mean? Um, like I I recognize what about that short people responded to. Um, what about me made him champion me so aggressively to his his peers? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, again, I guess you don't have to know either. <laughs> you know, it's like, just keep being yourself. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that I sometimes hear people say that they respond to positively about me on set is that I tend to be, um, my children may bust up in here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna get into the panic room. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. The, 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 the older one is trying to keep the little one out, but you know, we'll see. Um, anyway, uh, you know, people tell me I'm calm and that that calm nature is uh, reassuring, that it helps, you know, create a safe space, that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and Maybe he picked up on that energy, um, but I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't really, I don't really know. I remember, I remember thinking it was cool conversation. I remember thinking dude was cool, like, you know. And he was like, you know, I'm, I've done the festival circuit at this point. I think I met him in like January, February of two thousand four. I want to say, right. Um, so it was a little while after Sundance. So, you know, I had gone to the festivals and, you know, done that thing. You know what I mean? I wasn't pure student in that most of my interaction was, you know, with other students and faculty and everything like that. But I had not had a lot of, you know, conversations with working producers and not in television too, which was, right. I was interested when I came out of film school because, so I, I was at the time when I was finishing film school, I was one of the, one of the few of my peers who actually was excited about the, the, the possibility of working in television. I definitely wanted to make movies, but I also had fallen in love with the West Wing and mm -hmm. Sopranos, and I was like, those shows are dope. I mean, I would love to work on those shows. I would love to work, if that's what, what's being done in television, then, right. then sign me up, you know what I mean? Truth be told, when I first met 
Bob Colesbury, I had not seen The Wire yet because I, did, I was a starving artist, man. I didn't have HBO. The only reason yeah. I seen Sopranos was because I had a neighbor who always watched it and I would go to her house and watch it with her. So that's how I'd seen The Sopranos, but I hadn't seen the show when we first met. Then of course, after I met him, I was like, you know, finding it, devouring it, loved it. Right. Hi, it's Aya Cash, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. So for the next, you know, uh, for the next 10 years, right? So you go from The Wire to Grey's Anatomy, you're in the ABC program, um, that, you know, it's funny you mentioned what, uh, that when you came out, you were, you kind of had your eye on TV because I was obviously behind you when I was an undergrad, but I was in the film, film, film mode and I was watching you like, yo, maybe this TV shit is, is a target, you know? And, <laughs> and there's so many, like, uh, there's so many men, uh, stories along the way that you, that you probably remember, like. I remember when I saw you, you were filming Entourage. Yep. And this was, this is, I love this story because I kind of feel like it goes to speak to like the kismet of things. Like it was, you were on Melrose. I was parked, I was going to Lala's, I think. Uh, and uh, this Argentinian place. And I, I, I made like a quadruple take. Like, do I want to walk to the street or do I want to walk through the alley? Do I want to walk through the street or do I want to walk through the alley? And I was like, uh, alley. And I walked through the alley and for like a nanosecond, I saw the back of your head go into, I think y'all were shooting in a weed store. And I saw the back of your head go in. And I was like, yo, that looked like fucking Seath right there. And I, I don't remember how I got your connect uh, uh, attention, but then you're like, yo, you got to apply to this HBO thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, 10 years before I would get in. But um, how did you, how did you like navigate from, from, the wire to graze and then like this really beautiful dance of premium cable mm. half hour it, it seems like you were doing mostly hours but you were still getting those that jab in with like entourage and like some really smart half hour shows like how did you work that out because that's the toughest thing to do a comedy and drama b broadcast and premium cable and c being black so the the, the short and quick answer is god because honestly, again, what I can't claim as the the sort of uh, I can't claim to have been a master strategist that said, "Oh, I want to work in the network and the premium cable space. I want to be able to do half hour and you know what I mean." Things aligned for me, and I you know managed to walk through doors that that opened for me. So. As far as the premium cable and, and network space, what happened was a lot of people, they either, you know, they get their shot in network or they get their shot on the cable show and then they have to work over the years. They have to keep working because, you know, once you're in, you want to keep working, but then they also have to figure out a way to prove to somebody that they can work in the other space, right? And so I was very fortunate in the, in the, and, and first of all, I guess uh, I remember that that story because it was so crazy because what happened on my end was it wasn't a weed store. We had just turned it into a weed store for the for the for the scene. And uh, and I needed some fresh air or they were lighting or whatever. I just stepped out the back door of the location to get some air and walked right into you. And I was like, oh shit, Pete, what's up? And then we started talking. You're like, what you doing? I'm like, shooting entourage. And you're like, what? And uh, so I remember that. That was a great moment. Cause I felt like, I felt like you were passing through. I didn't realize you had seen me already. And I felt like, damn, if I had waited five minutes to step outside, I wouldn't have seen 
I wouldn't have seen you. You know what I mean? So it was kismet right. for both of us. And then for me, it was also like that boost. You know, I mean, I remember, I think that was the day, you know, a lot of shots on that show, you know, the the, the sort of aesthetic of the show, the one and a buyback. And it, that scene we were trying to do in a pure one And I think we had, I think we ended up doing like 16 takes, something a little bit beyond, because it was complicated. And uh, it was, it was a, it was a tonic to my soul to see someone from my filmmaking roots from New York, you know what I mean, that I fucked with on some like word, you know what I mean? And I just took your energy and went back into the to the Man. set and finished my scene, you know what I mean? But um that's what's up. What what happened was I got they always say it's like hard to get your first episode in television and harder to get your second, right? And so I was very fortunate in that I got, so, let me see now. Yeah, I shadowed on the wire. Then I got into ABC's directing training program and moved to LA to do that, right? And ended up shadowing on Grey's Anatomy, ended up shadowing Adam Davidson and, and Peter Horton. And Peter, who's the producer director, ended up championing me to get my first episode of Grey's Anatomy. And then simultaneously, the Wire, which I don't know if you remember this, but The Wire was on the bubble after their third season. They didn't know if they were going to come back. There was a whole website, savethewire.com and all that. And, you know, so I didn't even know if they were going to be a show, let alone if I was going to get one. And then they they got their fourth season order. And then Nina called me up and was like, you know, what's up? So I had suddenly the opportunity to direct two shows before I directed my first show, you know what I mean? So I had a, a, a Wire episode, and then later there was going to be a Grey's Anatomy episode. So I ended up getting simultaneously, independent of one another, shows in both spaces. And Dope. that's why I was able to go in between, because I had a Wire and I had a Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, that I did Grey's in the second season. I mean, what is Grey's on, like, season 18 it's, now it's going into 17 going into 17 seasons so i did it in the second season when you know it was still like new and like the right. it's broadcast show on the air and then the wire was you know then and still arguably the best cable show you know what i mean so between those two yeah. credits it was like it's you know, timing it was, it was i was time. bugging I was bugging too because I I saw that you had the DGA award for the name of the game episode of Grays and it's a comedy award. But <laughs> but but I thought comedies and I, I don't necessarily agree with all these distinctions but I I was I was brought up to believe comedies were half hour. Um so that's interesting. Um, <laughs> because I don't know this I don't know if it's because of that but so when, when I was applying for the DGA nominations that year, um, my agent's assistant at the time, she was like, do you want to submit it as a drama or a comedy? And I was like, huh, I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it. I was like, because it is funny. It was a funny episode. And I said, let's, she was like, I think you should do it as comedy. And I was like, yeah, let's do it as a comedy. And that, I think, is what opened the door for me to do the half hours, actually. Because uh, I'm DGA nominated for a comedy, right? Now, after that year, I believe it was after that year, I heard that they changed the rules such that a show could only be nominated as a drama or a comedy, right? right. Because that year, I was nominated as a comedy for Grey's. Peter Horton was nominated as a drama for Grey's. You know what I mean? So I think they were like, wait a second. You know, they changed the rules a little bit. But... You know, fortunately for me, they didn't change them before we submitted it as a comedy. We just built out the box, you know. Man, so 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 in 2015, you mm -hmm. make another short. Yes. Veracity. Why? Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm about to make another short myself. So I'm. I'm just saying it in the way the audience might wonder. Like you, you you're 10 years deep in the game of television and you and you say, I'm gonna make another uh, short film. You know, it's funny, I have often thought about making another short and, you know, have not had the time in the schedule to to prioritize it. I, I won't say I won't, 
I don't have the time. It's like, you have the time for what you prioritize. And it's like, you know, oh, I'm gonna do a short this year. Because there is a part of you, for me, working, you know, at that time in 2015, I was still working exclusively as a guest director. Mm-hmm. And I had not, you know, as, you know, as a guest director, you have nothing approaching final cut. You know what I mean? Right. You're not even in the final conversations about how your cut evolves. And when I was in film school, if I had not succeeded as a director, I would most likely have pursued success as an editor. You know what I mean? I cut a lot of people's films while I was, you know, I cut a lot of other students' films while I was in film school. I love the editing process. So there's a part of me that is often, not always, but often frustrated that I don't participate editorially longer in in the television uh, post-production process. And at that time, um, I had not worked as a producer yet. So I was always thinking, I want to do a short, you know what I mean? Just to be able to finish the, to complete the process. You know what I mean? Um, We were brought up the same way as like uh, what I call complete filmmakers. You know what I mean? From, you know, writing, prep, production, and post. All of that is, you know what I mean? That's all the job. That's all of it. You know what I mean? So there's a way in which not being part of it can be frustrating for me. So for me, a short was a quick way to satisfy those creative needs. Um, But it always would fall to the wayside. I hadn't done no short between, as you point out, 2003 and 2015. But there was a program called Scenarios USA. It was a nonprofit. And the way Scenarios was set up, unfortunately, Scenarios doesn't exist anymore. Um, But what they would do, the the whole idea was to... um, not the whole idea, because it was a big program. What they did is they they had these curriculums that they would set up in schools with underrepresented students, so brown and black kids, and they 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 kind of cultivated these uh, or developed these curriculums about you know tolerance, uh, anti-bullying, you know all this sort of positive inclusion, what have you. And then once the kids finished the curriculum, they had a screenwriting contest where, you know, based on the things they had learned as the curriculum, they would write a film, a short film. And then they would form a committee and whoever won the screenwriting contest, they would pair that student screenwriter with a professional director to make their short. And they reached out to me and said, hey, we're doing, you know, told me about the program. And they were like, you know, would you be our director for, you know, the winter in Chicago. And I was like, yeah, because one, it was an opportunity to make a short, which I've been wanting to do for a while. And two, it was an opportunity to give back and give back in a way that wasn't just like, you know, make a donation to this cause or that cause to go share my craft and my talent with some other black or brown kid that had an interest in what I do professionally. You know what I mean? So that's why I did it. It was it was it was a convergence of wanting to make, you know, as many films and tell as many stories as I can that I believe in and an opportunity to give back. And, right. the, uh, and the screenwriter was Janaea Green, uh, who's a very talented uh, young sister who I believe ended up going to the Ohio State to study journalism. I love I love how uh, and and also that film starred Kiki Lane who's yes killing it on the old guard right now. It's just yes. You know, I, was, I bumped into her last was it last year, uh, coming from Morehouse's homecoming, and um, I was just walking to catch my Uber car away from campus, and I saw Kiki, and I hadn't seen her since you know Beale Street and everything, and it was just it was so good to see her. She's doing so well. I'm very happy for her. Mm. Yeah, now nah, that's dope. It's and and it's all it's such a marathon. You just see like all these people who were packed in a van trying to shoot something over a weekend, and then now they're you know taking yep. off. Um, so for the for the directors that are listening, um, <clears throat> I often feel when I'm talking to different groups that kind of invite me to talk about the little bit that I've learned, um, I always say like you recognize that you're directing in weird moments. And it's often not uh, about blocking or 
or some note that you gave. It's some interpersonal uh, psychological navigation of, of what's going on with either, you know, cast or crew or producers or whatever. Um, without naming names, is there any kind of interesting anecdote that you have where you're like, ah, that was directing. The one I share often is I was, I got called down to a trailer, to the makeup trailer. Um, showrunner EPs in there, star of the show, hair and makeup. Um, and five women, I get called in and I'm being uh, questioned about a particular scene that we had discussed and I thought we had landed on something. <laughs> and as we're going through the conversation and we're talking about like a body double and other things, I'm trying to suss out what's happening because mm -hmm. it's go it's straying from what we agreed upon we I walked everybody through it like we were going to have like we had to get a steady cam and a dolly in order to make this cut work seamlessly because uh, we needed the camera to boom down, etc. And as it was happening, I was basically noticing that the person didn't want to ask for a body double. But they wanted it. And in, and in this like five second window, I had to figure out what the real request was. Mm. and and then you know go and then so when I left I was like man that was directing because that moment right there navigated you know with the wrong with the wrong move you know number one on the call sheet might have a problem with you for the next four days yeah. you know what I mean um so I just wonder like is there anything like that where you're like man I'm trying to think I don't I don't you know without the Without the example, the thing I started to think about, which was a scene that I, I was particularly like, I had that moment where I was like, that was directing, was I had this scene um, where, you know, the scene was written and it was good, but there was like, when we rehearsed it, it it just somehow didn't seem like it was working. You know what I mean? For for lack of a more specific word about what was not working about it. It just didn't, it just wasn't landing in a way that was like sort of merited the the sort of weight that was placed on where this scene landed in the script. And it was between a, a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and it was an argument and it was a, it was a, supposed to be a tension sort of scene and it's a scene where the woman is confronting her man about a lot of things but ultimately ends up confronting him about a certain kind of you know infidelity and so we just kept rehearsing it and we were rehearsing it you know in the <laughs> television production schedule you know read the lines <laughs> move around once or twice, mark it. You know what I mean? Like there's a speed with which you're accustomed to getting it marked. And uh, we rehearsed that scene for a while. And I kept changing the blocking and I kept, you know, um, basically asking the actors not to, not asking the, the, um, the actress not to start the scripted dialogue until something happened. And then in the process of rehearsing it, it was like something happened and it was magical and it was powerful. And I was like, oh, this is the scene. You know what I mean? Like it was a whole thing that needed to happen before we could start the scripted dialogue for the scripted dialogue to work. The scripted dialogue was fine. You know what I mean? It wasn't one of those things where it was like the dialogue wasn't there, but it was the the context that preceded it needed to actually be discovered in that space, in that scene for the scene to work. And we discovered it. And once we did, you know what I mean? And at a certain point, like 30 minutes into a rehearsal and it's still not that thing. And you don't know what that thing is, but you know that there's something more that you should be getting out of the scene. You ain't found it yet. It's like, you can feel the, the breath and the eyes. It was just like, right. but I know something. And then you find it. Right. I was like, okay. That's dope. I'm, I'm a director today. You know what I mean? That, I felt very good about that scene. 
you turn around and now like there's four more people in video village and you like, <laughs> uh, wonder, you're like, oh, I know what's going on. That, not, but see, that's, that's when a, you don't turn around. <laughs> Do not turn around. <laughs> Keep your eyes forward. But you, you know, that, turn around. that story is a good testament to what a director brings to episodic television that I think often gets overlooked and not acknowledged. Because from week to week, there if that if there there's a reason why some episodes aren't as good as others are, right? Because that whoever if that weren't you, they could have very well been like, okay, cool, and I marked and let's go, and then mm-hmm. master fifty fifty overs, one insert. All right, next scene. Right, and it would have it would have been real to the world, but it wouldn't have been elevated, and that's uh, that is directing. Amen. So what we're turning the corner here now. What what's the biggest difference between you uh, in two thousand three or two thousand two shooting five deep breaths and uh, in twenty twenty uh, shooting whatever we shoot when the world opens back up and we're shooting again? What's changed for you as a director? Huh. Well, I'm not a starving artist anymore. <laughs> um. That's changed. Um, I think I, I think I know a lot more. I, I had just have a lot more experience in terms of, in terms of filmmaking experience, in terms of working with actors experience. I, I have a lot more, um, just um, knowledge of of what I'm doing. Uh, I am, you know, I don't know. I've I've literally lost count of how many episodes of television I've directed. You know what I mean? I've now EP three different shows, one of which I'm very proud to say just got three Emmy nominations for our cast. And Free Ray Sean. Yeah. Um that was dope. That first episode, man, that first scene in that first episode, I was like, ah, Quibby's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you directed the hell out of that one, man. That Thanks, was great. Brother. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. It was fun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I'm still like uh, striving as a filmmaker. You know what I mean? There's still stories I want to tell that I haven't told yet. And um, that is similar, um, but I feel more equipped to do it now. Um, I just feel like I actually know what I'm doing. Whereas mm-hmm. in 2003, it was all sort of like luck and chance and, uh, you know, I think raw talent, not necessarily wisdom. Mm. All right. Well, I got a couple lightning round questions for you. Um, What's a lightning? These are like whatever comes quickly to mind for the for the answer. Um, what are three things you think people should binge right now? Whether it could be a movie or a TV show, it could be on any platform too. Uh, the Watchmen, Free Ray Sean. And uh, Mindhunter. All right, all seasons. I ain't seen all seasons of Mindhunter, so I can't say. But the first one was really good. What are three traits that you think an emerging director needs to make it in episodic television? Uh. Uh. Patience, passion, and uh, a facility with people. Mm. And who should be our next guest? Executive uh, Kalia Booker, um, a director Rob Hardy. Ah, Rob, okay. Dope. Well, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, 
honestly, like I said before, man, literally you were the you were the target for me and and knowing that the transition could be made to TV directing and also that you could maintain and I and some of these words I don't like the connotation of it, but you could maintain the art. You know what I'm saying? Like you could still want to have an artistic voice and presentation and uh, find a way to not just be a, a service provider, but to be a director. So appreciate you. Appreciate you, brother. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, that was episode 14, Seath Man. Thank you for joining us. I invite everybody to go back into the archive here and check out some of the other interviews if you have not. We've got conversations with, let's see, Theo Travers of Billions in episode one, uh, Issa Rae of Insecure in episode two. I'm going off memory here, y'all. Uh, Dorian Missick of ABC's For Life in episode three. Simone Missick, episode four, the star of All Rise. And now I'm not going to give you the numbers. I'll just give you the people. Michael Spiller of uh, The Mindy Project and currently in Vancouver shooting The Mighty Ducks. Rob McElhenney, uh, Mythic Quest. And It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Robbie Rashid and Mary Rolick of, A- of Atypical, Romney Malco, Keith Powell, uh, Bala Widobro, DP on Barry, Insecure, Gronish, Aya Cash, uh, and of course, the one you've just heard, Seath Man, episode 14. So we're out here, we're sharing this information for free, just having these conversations and inviting y'all up to the table, um, like you're sharing a beer, coffee, or glass of wine with us, and I hope you enjoy. For those who have any questions, uh, you know, holla, let us know um, via the email and socials. And we will catch you next week with our guest for episode 15, the fabulous director, Molly McGlynn, hailing from Canada. So in the meantime, y'all, say what's up to my talented team. I've got my producer, Tristan Nash, my assistant producer, Jada George, my announcer, Kelly McCreary, and of course, y'all for tuning in. Stay safe, stay blessed, and spread love. Peace.